Good morning, everybody. Uh, Pastor Steve is out in Wyoming this morning uh, celebrating with Steffi, who has finished her year at Jackson Hole Bible College. Um, Over the last few years, I've gotten to know Joey. He is the associate pastor at Morning Star Bible Church and um, had a great relationship with him and their church as we've partnered together on several different youth ministry events, uh, particularly winter camp. Um, and Joey is uh, uh, just a great guy, uh, a lover of the Lord, um, really a high view of Scripture um, and, and what that is and what that should mean in our lives as we really, uh, really lend our wills to what the Bible tells us and has for us. Um, Morning Star, you guys can, um, as Darren did, continue to pray for them. They're in a long hunt for a, uh, a new pastor, um, which they have um, been enduring for a year and a half now? 14 months, 14 months. yeah. So, uh, But Joey, if you would come up, um, it is a pleasure to welcome Joey to come and preach for us this morning. Um, so thank you, Joey, for doing that. Thank you. All right, well, thank you for the opportunity to uh, be here, especially Steve and uh, the elders. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, many of you have already asked this morning, where's Leah and Layla? Because I understand that the best part of Joey Clapp is the girls that he drags along with him everywhere. Um, Leah is actually over at Redeemer Church this morning, not even at Morningstar. Um, she uh, takes uh, ACBC uh, counseling certification over there, and every eight weeks or so they have a, a counseling cohort that she has to attend. And so um, she's, we're, we're all over the place. We've got people at Morningstar, we've got people at Redeemer, we've got people here. And so um, I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here with you, uh, even sans Leah and Layla. And so if you'll open your Bibles um, to First Peter... Uh, first Peter, um, I want to, I want to recognize the life changing hope of grace this morning, the life changing hope of grace. First Peter is actually a great reminder of how our time as exiles, um, is, is conducted. And, and the fact is that, that our identity in Christ um, gives us hope and instruction for our time as exiles. And the, and the reason I keep saying exiles is, if you look in First Peter 1, one, it says that Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Essentially, um, these Christians to which this book was written are, are scattered over, all over this geographical area, um, and they're called elect exiles um, because because they are exiles. They they don't fit in with their cultures, and we'll we'll talk more about that. But but uh, specifically this morning, I want to talk about how hope changes and transforms our lives. Proverbs thirteen twelve actually says that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is the tree of life. And it's important to keep hope in the Christian life, but not just keep hope in hope. Keep hope in the right thing. Uh, I'm reminded of, a, of an a excerpt from a book that I read uh, from a man named Viktor Frankl. Uh, Viktor Frankl uh, endured many years in a concentration camp in the 1940s. And while he was there uh, in that concentration camp, he met a, a well-known composer. 
Um, and the well-known composer one day confided in Frankel that, that he had had a strange dream. Um, and in this strange dream, a, a voice came to him and said, whatever you want to know, it will be granted. And so this composer asked, well, uh, what I want to know is when my suffering will be over and when our, 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 our concentration camp will be liberated. And the voice confidently answered back to him, March 30th. Of all the dates, just March 30th, they just kind of put it out there. Uh, and interestingly enough, this composer, after this dream, as as the day March 30th drew nearer, he had a spring in his step and he was able to do his work with confidence and happiness because, because the day was coming when these people who are abusing me, will justice will be served to them. And I, I am confident that on March 30th, I will be liberated from this prison. And yet... As the news that trickled sometimes to prisoners um, came in, as March 30th was growing closer, it wasn't that the war was getting better, the war was actually getting worse. And and this composer, his, his confidence in that voice and his dreams started to crack. And as on March 29th, the day before that promised date, that man became seriously ill. On March 30th, he became delirious and eventually lost consciousness. And on March 31st, the day after that promised day, he was dead. He died of hopelessness. And Proverbs 13:12, as tragically illustrated by that anecdote, helps us to understand that we have to maintain hope, but not just hope in anything, hope in the right thing because Peter wants us to understand that a settled living hope has the power to change your life. Now if you remember sort of your the the context the historical context of first Peter you have to remember that the, these Christians to whom this book was written are living as social outsiders. They are different from the people around them. And yet because their hope was not in social acceptance they were able to live differently because if their hope was in social acceptance, they would have been devastated. They didn't fit in. They, they weren't the same as the people around them. Why is it that they could or why is it that they were different? Well, because their citizenship had changed to a different kingdom. The verse just before our passage here in, in uh, verse 13, the verses just previous talk about how that we, our our citizenship has been changed from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of heaven. And because our citizenship has changed, we are able to live differently. And, and Peter is trying to teach these elect exiles in First Peter chapter 1 that hope in their salvation will change their lives. And we find ourselves in a similar situation, don't we? We're, we're all citizens of Illinois. We're all citizens of the United States. We're citizens of this world, but we live differently. The world around us can't understand how we would believe the crazy things that we believe, these outdated morality, this outdated morality and, the, and these weird things about the end of the world and how the Savior is going to come back on a horse with a tattoo on his thigh. Like this, this stuff is crazy to the people around us. But we are different because hope in the grace of our salvation transforms our thoughts and behaviors. Hope in the grace of our salvation transforms our thoughts and behaviors. 
Let's read our passage this morning, and then we'll ask the Holy Spirit to bless his word after we read it. Uh, let's start in verse 13. So, so chapter 1, starting in verse 13, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who is called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we do ask that your word would give us hope this morning. We ask that your word would point us to the correct object of our hope. And I also ask that this hope would change us and make us more like you. Lord, we ask this because of the hope that we have in our salvation. Amen. All right, so First Peter 1 in our passage here this morning is going to teach us how our lives are transformed by the hope of grace. But before we get into the meat of how our lives are going to be, be transformed, I think it's important that we stop and take note of an important feature of this text. The important feature of this text is that there's a really important imperative in verse 13, the first verse that we that we talked about this morning, okay? There's a really important imperative. Now, if you're familiar, if you've read through 1 Peter, you understand that 1 Peter has a tone of almost urgency. It's almost like an emergency. Peter is trying to get people to do certain things. And the reason that it seems it has that tone of urgency is that in the 90, there's about 90 verses in the book of 1 Peter, and in the 90 verses, Peter uses over 30 imperatives. So in other words, Peter is telling you what to do an average of every three verses. And if you notice, there's a lot of imperatives in these, in these verses. So the, these verses that we're doing today, we, we are up in the average um, with, with the imperatives. And, and so it's important that we understand that this imperative, the one in verse 13, sort of organizes all the other imperatives, and not just in our passage, but in all of the first section of First Peter. So this, this imperative is very important. And it's, it's important that we understand exactly what it is and exactly what we're supposed to put our hope in. So what's the imperative? All right, the imperative is to, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if this imperative is so important, and the imperative is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we should probably understand what grace is, right? What, and, and we kind of have our Sunday school answers for this. But, but in our passage here, what Peter is doing is he's using a one-word summary of what he's, he's just taught in, in verses 1 through 12. And just to quickly uh, summarize what's happened in verses 1 through 12 is that, that Peter is telling us that our salvation comes with a covenant relationship. Our salvation comes with eventually total sanctification, or another way of saying glorification. One day we won't struggle with this sin anymore. 
<clears throat> it comes with a new father, new birth, new hope, and an inheritance. It comes with new affections, new thinking, new behavior, and new desires. So those are the things that, that our salvation, that accompany our salvation. And in fact, he's even going to later teach on what grace is. So if you just turn one page over in your Bible to chapter 5 in verse 10, it says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself. So what is the God of grace going to do? He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Why was that so important? Well, you remember the people to whom this book is being written. The people to whom this book is being written, they are scattered all over this huge geographical area, and they need these things. They need restoration because they're losing friends. They're losing family members. They're not being killed for their faith. That's not the kind of persecution that you should have in your mind. This isn't, nobody's going and, and, and killing anybody for their faith, at least at this time. A few years in the future, yes, that will happen. But at, at, at the time that this is written and at the time that this is being distributed around this, this, uh, this geographical area with these Christians that are scattered, at that time, no one's being killed for their faith, but they're losing their jobs. They're losing their families because they can't understand that. Why would you believe this stuff? Why would you believe in a Messiah that comes and dies for sin? I can't understand why you would do this. They're losing relationships. And so as they lose all of these things, what a comfort to hear that grace, look at, restores. What a comfort to hear that as they're scattered all over this huge geographical areas, that you, you understand that there's no like huge basilicas and, and Christianity isn't a huge influence on the culture. There are just tiny pockets of people all around this huge geographical area that feel isolated and yet grace confirms. These people are always operating in a position of, of cultural weakness and yet grace strengthens. These people are unsettled by the persecution that is coming their way. Their life does not feel like it used to feel. And yet, grace establishes. This is why Peter says that, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, Peter calls this a living hope. And this, this hope, when you, when you read the word hope, you have to understand that this isn't just a desire that these things will happen. This isn't just a desire that these things have happened. This is a settled confidence. It's not a desire that, oh, I really hope that thing will happen, but this is a certainty that this thing will happen. And that's why the author of Hebrews calls hope the anchor of our soul. When we place our faith into this, into a living hope, it anchors our soul. And this is why Peter's imploring people to take your faith away from all those things that are shifting and temporary and put it into the settled living hope that has the, uh, that has the potential to change your life, the power to change your life. Okay, so, so what happens when we actually put our faith into this hope? Well, hope in grace transforms our thinking. Hope in grace transforms our thinking. How does hope and grace transform our thinking? Well, hope and grace resets our expectations. So God's grace resets our expectations. Now, if you're following along in, in a modern translation, you see at the beginning of verse 13, it says, therefore preparing your minds for action. 
Now, if you have uh, an ESV like I do, you'll see that there's a footnote there. And and the actual phrase is, is an idiom, it's a Greek idiom, um, that the translators have taken the liberty of making a little more palatable for us. Um, and the idiom is girding up the loins of your mind. Now, I, I know why the translators did this, because that is not a phrase that we use often. It's not as understandable as preparing your minds for actions. But, but I think it's important for us to understand what that means, girding up the loins of your mind. Um, that is definitely a mental picture, huh? Uh, but girding up the loins of your mind uh, would have been a lot more understandable to the to the original audience. Now, you remember uh, that first century dress was whether you were a man or a woman, you would wear a long flowing robe. Now, these these clothes looked stellar, but it was really hard to do anything in them. So, so anytime you were ready to, to work or do any type of strenuous activity, um, you would take those things and they had a way of tying them sort of up around their waist. So they made these little nice, cool shorts things and, and then they would, they would do whatever it was that they were trying to, to, to accomplish. And what Peter is trying to do here is he's trying to reset the expectation in their mind that Christianity would be this easy thing. I think a lot of us, maybe if you if you came to Christ as an adult, um, you maybe thought that that Christianity was going to be the, like the solution to all your problems, and everything would be hunky dory after I believe. And then it turns out that it it, it was actually really hard. And it's really hard to live as exiles. It's really hard to be different than the people around you. And Peter wants them to know that, that if you're going to sit on the veranda all afternoon, you don't need to gird up your loins. But if you are going to be preparing for hard work, for strenuous activity, or for war, you are going to need to gird up the loins of your mind. Understand that Christianity, he wants them to understand that, that Christianity would be strenuous work. It would be hard, and sometimes it would even be war. But not only does God's grace reset our expectation, God's grace creates ethical nonconformists. Now, you had to, you had to know inviting somebody over for Morningstar, you're going to get something silly like this. Um, but God's grace creates ethical nonconformists. It sounds ridiculous, but it's not all that complicated. Um, what I mean by God's grace creates ethical nonconformists, uh, just follow along. So, so let me tell you a universal reality. A uni- universal reality is that your culture will dictate ethics to you. Your culture will dictate ethics to you. Uh, in this culture, okay, we have some uh, some extra biblical, some historical evidence um, that tells us sort of the cultural conditions, uh, the cultural ethical conditions, I should say, of the Middle East at this time. Um, now, their culture, first century culture, um, was teaching these believers that it was not just allowable, but it was encouraged, it was good and right for a man to satisfy his sexual desires outside of his marriage, with women outside of his marriage. That was, that was not just okay, that was encouraged, that was right. Not only that, but the life of a woman was, was not valued at all. In fact, in this time, and we have sort of these extra biblical, uh, historical references to this, that in that time, if a girl, if a baby girl was born into a family, there was a question whether that family would raise the girl or just throw the girl into the dump and let her die of exposure. 
That, that was the cultural message that was being given to these people. And, and whether you live in the first century or the 21st century, understand that your culture is dictating ethics to you. In other words, when, when we read a book, when we watch a movie, when you read a news story, and by the way, from either side, the culture is dictating ethics to you. We need to be aware of the fact that the culture wants you to believe certain things. They're trying to dictate ethics to you. But not only is the culture dictating ethics to you, on the other side, there's a human innate desire. There's, there's just something in us that always wants to be accepted and loved. Okay, so over here, you've got culture dictating ethics to you. Over here, you've got this innate desire inside of humans to be accepted in loves. Who, who wants to be just alone and, and to be outcast? No, people, that's, that's not a natural inclination of us. And so what happens is when culture dictates ethics to us, Paul, or sorry, Peter calls it a, the, our former ignorance. He says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, verse 14. He says, don't, don't just slip into the cultural neutral. Our, our natural inclination, our, our natural tendency is just going to be to do what our culture is telling us to do because that helps us to fit in. When we just do what the, so the culture over here is trying to dictate ethics to us, when we just give in and do those things, you fit in with the rest of the culture. That's why it's the sort of cultural neutral. But God's grace creates ethical nonconformists. Not only does Peter say, just don't be conformed to the, the, the passions of your former ignorance, he actually throws the gauntlet and he says, no, you should be holy because God is holy. Whew. There's, there, that, that is impossible. In fact, he even quotes Leviticus 11.44 here, uh, where, where he, he says, be holy as I am holy. This is a, a quote from as as they as the Israelites stand around the bottom of Mount Sinai and Moses comes down and he starts listing all these rules and I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments he's in the middle of the list of like you can wear this you can't wear this you got to wash this way you got to do these things you got to wear these clothes don't wear these other clothes don't do this do this and and as in the middle of this huge list of requirements that these people are never going to be able to do in Leviticus 11:44. Moses says, be holy as God is holy. Can you imagine the standard that that set up for those people? Impossible. There's no way that I could be holy like God is holy. And yet, that is what they are called to. But the good news is, as predicted in Jeremiah 31, 31, that the law would be written on our hearts. It would no longer be this external pressure that was causing us to obey the law, but the law would transform us from the inside out. We would no longer be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but we would be able to be holy as God is holy because Jesus has freed us from that impossible standard in three ways. Okay, Here are the three ways that Jesus frees us from that impossible standard. First of all, Christ is the perfect revelation of holiness. Now, if you are standing at the bottom of Mount Sinai and you hear Moses say, be holy as I am holy, speaking in the voice of God, be holy as God is holy, you might, you might have the temptation to say, well, of course God is holy. 
Of course he's holy. He has no temptation. He lives in heaven with angels. But look at me. Like, I just came out of, of Egypt. It's hard. Like, we have no food. This is, this is not easy to be holy like God is holy. God has this, like, very sterile environment, uh, where, where he, of course he could be holy. And what does God do in response to that attitude? He becomes a man in the form of Jesus Christ. And he is the perfect revelation of holiness to us. He is the way that we, he shows us the way that we can respond to that temptation. But not only is he the perfect revelation of holiness, he's the perfect example of living without a sin nature. Um, on Easter at our church, we, we went through Colossians 2 and we talked at length about how when we place our faith into the sacrifice of Christ, our sin nature is cut away or brought to nothing. And so we are liberated to, to think differently, to behave differently, exactly what we're talking about today. And, and because our sin nature has been cut away, we now have the opportunity to choose right before. Romans 8 says before we, we believed, we ha- did not have the opportunity. We were slaves to sin. We had to do whatever sin told us to do. And yet... Because our sin nature has been cut away or brought to nothing, we are now able to choose right. Praise God. And Jesus is our example of how to do that because Jesus, not only does he not have a sin nature, he didn't even start with a sin nature. And so he is our example of how to live sans sin nature. But number three, he is also the perfect sacrifice that frees us from these ignorant passions. Because of his blood, we are able to choose differently. We are able to choose right because his sacrifice was what wrote the law on the inside of our heart. Not just this external pressure that's causing us to do something. No, this is internal. It changes our hearts and desires from the inside. And here's the thing that a lot of times when you hear something like, be holy as God is holy, Nonconformity. We want to be nonconformist, but a lot of times that nonconformity goes wrong very easily. We can actually see this very easily in our Amish friends. Uh, our Amish friends are nonconformists, right? They don't fit in with the rest of their culture. They have different ways of dressing. They have different modes of transportation. They have different methods of work. They don't fit in with the culture. But Peter never intended for this nonconformity to only go skin deep. He says this nonconformity, this transformation has to happen on the inside, in your heart, and in your mind. And the thing is, we can't do this on our own. When our hope changes, though, our thinking changes. And when our thinking changes, our passions change. We will be able to to do something other than just be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. We will be able to choose holiness. We, we won't spend our money the same way that our neighbors spend our money because we value different things. Our thinking has been changed. We value different things than boats and cabins and, and, and the things that our neighbors all spend their money on. They can't imagine that we would give a certain percentage of our, of our income to the church. Really? I mean, think of all the things that you could do and have fun with, with your money, but we don't think the same way that our neighbors think because our hope in grace has changed the way that we think. Our our value of time is different. We don't scroll through hours and hours of reels and TikToks because our, our passions are different than our friends' passions. 
We don't, we don't value our effort or our time the same way that the world values their effort and time. We don't live lives of selfishness looking out for number one. No, we live lives of service to other people because we value our effort differently. Now this won't be easy. It's not, we can't just try harder to be weirder, right? That we're not supposed to fit in with the culture. Okay, I'll just try really hard to be weird. That's not how it works. It's only possible when we place our faith into the hope that'll be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But not only does hope change our thinking, hope changes our conduct. Number two, hope in grace transforms our conduct. Again, it's very easy to, to kind of hear this and, and be very legalistic in our response. But in, in between our, in between the, the, the imperative to change your thinking and change your conduct, Peter is actually going to stop and teach us something about God. And it, and it may seem a little abrupt, the change here, but I think you'll see that the logic is actually quite elegant that Peter is using here. He, he teaches us that our Father judges impartially. Our Father judges impartially. Let's, let's read the passage, or the, the verse here. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. So, so what Peter is doing here is he's trying to correct an age-old misconception about grace. Paul does it in Romans 6. Uh, Peter's going to do it here. He, essentially, what he wants them to know is that just because your sins have been forgiven does not mean that you can just do whatever you want. See, these Christians, they thought, and, and the, the error that he's trying to, to address here, is they thought that be, because they called God their father, that somehow they would get a free pass on their sins. And the fact is that, that God is impartial in his judgment of sin. They can't just get away with repeated and unrepentant sin. No, God is impartial in his judgment of sin. He has to prosecute every sin to its fullest extent. Because if he does not, he is not just. And if, is, if he is not just, then he is not God. So God has to charge. He has to prosecute every sin to the fullest extent of the law. Here's the thing, though. A lot of us, we've, we've tried to, and, and this, is, this is the saddest part, we've tried to pay for our sin in other ways other than this. He, and, and we think that because, and this is, this is for unbelievers now, we think that God won't charge our sin to the fullest extent of the law. We think that God is is just loving and, and he would never punish me for my sin. No, God has to punish the sin to the fullest extent of the law. And if he does not, then he's not God. So so God will judge each sin to the fullest extent of the law. What is the fullest extent of the law? Well, it's death. It always has been. The punishment for sin has always been death. And so if you have not placed your faith into the sacrifice of Christ for your sin, God has to kill you. God has to bring death. God has to judge your sin with death. And the fact is, if you have not done that, he will judge you. And not only will he judge you, he, he, he has to judge you to the fullest extent of the law. And so if you have never done this. Please turn from your sin and place your faith 
into the death of Christ because otherwise you will have to pay for that yourself. But for those of us who have believed, who have placed our faith into the sacrifice of Christ, he's trying to help us to understand that, that God has to, even if we call him Father, even if, even if our, our God is our friend, he has to judge our sin to the fullest extent of the law. And the impartiality of God should cause us to act in fear. That familial relation, that the fact that God is our Father, should push us away from sin, not towards it. Because fear, fear is not just a, a servile fear, uh, like that of a prisoner to his torture. No, this fear is a reverence born in adoration. So not only does our Father judge impartially, but let her be our, our Redeemer has purchased our behavior. And this is some of the most beautiful stuff here in this passage, that he's purchased our behavior. Let me read verse 18. Follow along in your Bibles and see if you can hear the difference what, uh, of, of how I say this. Knowing that you are ransomed from the condemnation for your sin... Knowing that you are ransomed from the punishment for your sin? Knowing that you are ransomed from hell or ransomed from Satan? No, that's not what Peter says. Although our, our, our uh, redemption includes all of those things, but that's not what Peter's teaching us here. Peter is trying to teach us that the, our ransom, the blood of Christ, ransoms us from futile ways. God, God's ransom, the, the ransom purchased for us in Christ ransoms our bad behavior. We have been ransomed from bad behavior. And what is it that has ransomed our bad behavior? Well, the precious blood of Christ, verse 19. And just before we end here this morning, I just I want to stop and, and concentrate, meditate on the blood of Christ and what it means for us. What is the blood of Christ? According to our passage here, verse 19 says that the precious, the blood of Christ is precious. Understand the cost of your redemption, the cost of redeeming your bad behavior. The cost of redeeming your bad behavior is the blood of Christ. And here's the saddest part, and I'm talking to unbelievers as well as believers here, that the cost of our redemption is the blood of Christ, and then what do we do to try to pay for our bad behavior? We try to do uh, uh, moralistic legalism. We try to do self-effort. We try to we try to do things on our own to cover our sin, but the cost of our redemption was not moralistic legalism. The cost of our redemption is the blood of Christ. We have to stop trying to pay for that bad behavior any other way. But not only that, the blood of Christ is not just precious, but it's also powerful. It's not as explicit. It's not power isn't isn't stated there. Um, but look at verse eighteen. The comparison between the precious metals like silver and gold. And the blood of Christ. Think, think of it this way. If you went into a car dealership with a briefcase full of cash, as long as it was in the correct amount, when you slide that briefcase full of cash across the desk, what are you going to walk away with? A new car, of course. Because when we walk into a car dealership with a briefcase full of relatively worthless paper, we get what we pay for, Correct? Now, it would be ridiculous for us to think that as Jesus walks into the room with his infinitely more powerful blood, 
that he would not walk away from that transaction with what he paid for. The blood of Christ obtains what it pays for. It is not impotent. What the blood of Christ pays for, it will get. And here's the interesting thing about this. Uh, one of, one of, sort of, sort of the implications of changed behavior, that the blood of Christ will get what it was, it is paid for, is that we can understand the, the spiritual state of each other via our behavior. You remember in geometry, uh, the theorems, right? If this, then this, then this, you know, A plus B equals C, that, that, those types of things, as some, some of you are like, oh, please, I'm finals week, I hate this. Um, so, so if you understand that if the blood of Christ will obtain what it paid for, then if your behavior has been changed, it's a good idea. That it's, a, it's a good indication that we have been redeemed. And on the flip side, if your behavior has not been changed, it's also a good indication that you have not been redeemed. In fact, um, the, the Bible tells us this is how fallible humans can see into other people the state of their faith. I can't see what's going on on the inside of you, but I can see the fruit of your faith in your behavior because the blood of Christ obtains what it pays for and what it has paid for is our behavior. And so when we, when our behavior is changed, it's an indication that we have been redeemed. And guess what? You can fool people for a very long time, but eventually that will crack because guess what? The only sin that can be overcome is a sin that has been forgiven. Let me say that again. The only sin that can be overcome is a sin that has been forgiven. And the fact is that that if we are trying to do this ourselves, we will never be able to overcome our sin because the only sin that can be paid for is a sin that's been forgiven. You can fool people for years, but eventually that veneer will crack Because the blood of Christ is the cost of your changed conduct. So conduct yourselves with fear. You know, the cultural neutral is going to tell you, you don't have time on Sunday mornings. You're you're going to give up half your weekend to hang out with those church people? That's incredible. No, the cultural neutral is going to tell you that, that if you wake up that early, you shouldn't be reading a Bible or praying. You should be getting extra work done. That's what the cultural neutral is going to tell you. But we are different than the cultural neutral. Well, how are we different than the cultural neutral? Well, we're different than the cult- from the cultural neutral because of the hope that we have in the gospel. You know what? The, the cultural neutral is going to tell you that it's absolutely, it's, it's absolutely okay, not just okay, but we should celebrate the fact that anybody gets to, to express their sexuality in any way that they want to. After all, how can pe- two people who truly love each other, how can that love be wrong? But we're different than the cultural neutral because we have hope in the grace, the hope of grace. You know what? The, the cultural neutral is going to tell you to cut out anyone in your life who doesn't affirm your lifestyle. Life is too short to be around people who won't accept you for who you are, but we're different than the cultural neutral because of the hope of grace. We are different because we've been redeemed, because hope in the grace of our salvation transforms our thoughts and behaviors. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in grace. Father, we thank you that that your grace has transformed our lives in so many ways. 
we thank you that, that as we come to you, um, you reward us with changed thinking, that you, you reset our expectations, that, that you make us into ethical nonconformists. And, and not only do you make us into ethical nonconformists, but you give us the strength to endure as ethical nonconformists. Father, we thank you that, that our behaviors have been bought by your precious blood. Lord, help us to understand the costliness of our redemption and help us to understand the, the power of your blood. Lord, help us to stop trying to redeem our bad behavior with, with impotent means. And help us to put our faith into the powerful and precious blood of Christ for the redemption for our bad behavior. Lord, free us from our legalism. Free us from our efforts and moralism. Uh, Lord, and, and, and free us to choose right. We ask this, Jesus, because of your name. Amen.